All of Hebrews is a letter of encouragement written to those early Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were, in our terminology today, and what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, they were, in fact, born again by faith in who Jesus said he was, the Messiah. However, like all of us, trusting in Jesus, despite what some well-meaning evangelists might have to tell you, Trusting in Jesus is not a guarantee that life is going to be smooth, that it's going to be easy, that there's not going to be any problems in it. How many of you can agree with that? No, there's no guarantee. As a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, trusting in Jesus is the beginning of a war. Your participation in an invisible spiritual war that's raging, has been raging uh, since man was created, since the fall of man in the garden, and will continue to rage until Jesus puts an end to it in his kingdom. And so, there's going to be problems. When you're a believer, there's no guarantee. The prosperity nonsense notwithstanding, there's no guarantee that your life is going to be smooth sailing. And certainly it wasn't the case for those early Hebrews. They were persecuted sorely for their faith in Jesus. Accepting Him as the Messiah put them at odds with their culture, put them at odds with their religious and the political authorities, and usually cost them dearly. Cost them their jobs, their money, their livelihood, their social networks cost them a lot. And so this letter written to the Hebrews, which I personally believe was written by Paul, anonymously, because if they heard that it was something that Saul of Tarsus wrote, no self-respecting Jew would ever read anything like that. So I think he wrote it anonymously. But his purpose was to encourage these new believers. To encourage them despite the persecution that he's going, they were going through. So, that being the background, we've looked at several important considerations throughout our study so far. And now we've come to a chapter, chapter 7, in which he begins to describe for us Jesus as our high priest. Now, most of us, and I'm assuming most of you, although I did have a lady, I don't believe she's here today, <clears throat> tell me that she was a Jew, been raised up in it. But most of the rest of us are old Gentiles, or simply non-Jews. And so we have a little trouble relating to what the author is telling us here throughout this book because it's written, as its title suggests, to Jews, to Hebrews. And so there's a little difficulty for us in understanding the impact of what he's saying. But to try to give you a little flavor of it 
What he's telling us here in chapter 7, what he's declaring to the Jews, by describing Jesus as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, was a very, very radical statement. It was shocking. And not only that, it was amazing. Now while we may not have the shock value of it, because we're Gentiles, not Jews, we will have the amazing fact of it here as we go through this. But to begin with, I'm going to do something I, I very rarely do with you in studying it. Because I don't see a lot of Bibles out there. There's a few. But you can follow along with me if you've got a scripture or if you've got it on your phone. Or you can follow along just by listening to me read it to you. Okay, But I want to read the entire chapter. Because the entire chapter has one subject, and that is to present Jesus as our high priest. We'll come back to that here in a moment. But let me read it to you. It doesn't really matter what translation you use to read this. It's still going to be confusing to you if you're a Gentile. Okay? So we'll read it. Just relax with it. Get what you can out of it. He begins by describing what he left off with in chapter 6. That Jesus, a high priest, was made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He goes on to say, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave the tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, and to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, through though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed by, of the better. And here, men that die receive tithes. But there, he received them, of whom it is witnessed that he continually lives. And as I may say so, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood, being changed, 
there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek there arise another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, that by him that, that said unto him, The Lord swore and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the peoples. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Y'all get that? Good, we'll go on. (laughs) Let me give you the overview here. Okay, because as I said, to start with, our author is meaning to encourage us. And not just those first century Hebrews he was writing to in this letter. But all who read this letter, so even though our author may not have known you, his purpose was to encourage you. Even if you're not a Jew, even if you're a Gentile, his purpose is encouragement. And the one thing that he presents in this chapter, and that's why I read the whole thing to you, the one thing he wants us to understand is that we have a high priest who is Jesus. Now, in contrast to the priests of Israel, 
the priesthood began with Aaron and his sons under the tribe of Levi. It's called, therefore, the Levitical priesthood. And it continued by succession from father to son on through right up until the time of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the priesthood, because it was not just a religious institution, it was also a political institution carrying with a great authority for the people. The priesthood, just like the kings of Israel, became corrupt. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, there was recognized by King Herod two high priests, Ananias and Caiaphas. So the priesthood, according to the law, became corrupt. And what he's wanting us to see now is to encourage us to recognize a priesthood that is not corrupt, a priesthood that is fulfilled by Jesus. Now let's deal first of all with this guy named Melchizedek, okay, <laughs> who we present, is presented here as Melchizedek. Actually, Melchizedek is only mentioned three times in the scriptures. You know that? First, back in Genesis 14, in the historical narrative, when Abraham, as he refers to here in our text, Abraham gathered together all of his servants and a few allies, and he went after four kings, led by a king by the name of Chedorlaomer, who actually stole the property of several city-states, including Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living. And so here comes these kings. They spoiled the city. They took all their goods. And they ran off with the people, all the hostages. Lot was among them. When news got to Abraham of what happened, he went to war. He prepared his people, chased them down, and destroyed those kings. And retrieved Lot and all the other hostages and the spoils. And on his way back, the king of Sodom, of course, he was very grateful and he wanted to go out there and make a deal with Abraham saying, hey man, you can keep all the material stuff. Just give me the people back. Abraham said, no, I'm not going to take anything. But before even, even the king of Sodom could get to him, this guy named Melchizedek, or identified as Melchizedek, shows up. And back there in the narrative of Genesis, he met Abraham with bread and wine. He came to refresh Abraham, and he was identified as the priest of the Most High God, and he was evidently, historically, the king of Jerusalem. Salem, which later would be Jerusalem. Now, with that historic history in mind, that's just a two-verse narrative in Genesis 14 about this guy. What's impressive about that narrative is not what's said about him. What's more impressive is what's not said about him. We don't know. <clears throat> we don't know as far as the Scripture is concerned who this guy was. So there's been a lot of debate with Bible scholars over the years 
about who this guy was. And it ranges from, well, he was just a historical figure to he was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself, especially because of his likeness to the Son of God, according to the narrative, to even some suggesting he was an angel. I've already shared with you a little bit about this a couple weeks ago when I said, according to Jewish tradition, according to the history of the Jews, especially from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were recently uncovered. This guy, Melchizedek, was not, that wasn't his name. Melchizedek was not a proper name. It was the title of an office. The office of the High Priest of the Most High God. Now, from Adam all the way to Abraham, the whole history, including Noah, etc., all of that, there was no high priest that is recognized. There was no priest between God and man except for the head of the house, the husband. He was recognized. So Adam was a high priest. His son Seth was a high priest. You go all the way down, and they viewed them as high priests. Now keep in mind, this priesthood is what all priesthood is about. It's concerning a relationship with God. If you wanted to have a relationship with God, even in the time of Noah, you would go to the guy that was recognized as the high priest. And how would he be recognized? Not by his title, necessarily, but by his actions. And so, all the way down this this Melchizedek priest, if you will, or this priest after the order of Melchizedek, descended, according to Jewish history, all the way down to Jesus, who fulfilled it completely. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, all the ramifications of that and all the history of that, but I'm just giving you the overview. So, we look at Melchizedek not as a person, but as an office. And of course, the, the fundamental aspect of this was when Melchizedek met him in returning from the slaughter of the kings, he met him with bread and wine and blessed him. Then he was conver- conferring the high priest office over to Abraham. He was doing it. Abraham became the chosen one. Now, as a Melchizedek priest. The point that our author is making here, now the other time before this mention here in Hebrews, is in Psalm 110. The 110th Psalm, it's a Messianic Psalm that is a prophecy concerning Jesus. And there, and our author's already quoted, God swore and would not repent wouldn't change his mind that his son would be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's the only other mention in the scripture. Our author of Hebrews obviously knows that. And so he now gives us a little more information about this office in the first part of chapter 7. 
And he wants us to make this connection. This guy, Melchizedek, there was no record of a genealogy. He wasn't from a tribe of any sort. There's no record of mother or father. There's no record of death. There's no record of genealogy. And so he's the perfect example of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that being said, he wants us to consider how much or how great this man was and he got into the tithing argument here. You know, I was thinking about preaching on tithing today because of this scripture where Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Okay? And he goes on to talk about the tithes that were collected by the Levitical priesthood and so on. But I didn't want to get sidetracked. So I'm not, the emphasis here is not upon tithing. The emphasis is upon recognition of authority. Recognition of an honor for that one who is tithed to. And he says Abraham received tithes, or, or rather Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Which is real strange because it was Abraham's offspring his grandson, great-grandson, Levi, was the head of the Levitical priesthood that for generation after generation after generation received tithes from Israel. And so his whole point here is that this guy Melchizedek, this priest of the Most High God, is greater not only than Abraham, but also greater than the priesthood that Israel was familiar with. He was a greater priest than the ones that they were already familiar with. And we'll get to the application of it here in a moment, but there's a couple other key points I want to present in this chapter that he describes, not only that he received tithes, but the priesthood was changed. Actually, there was a substantial change in the priesthood when in Psalm 110, God declared that His Son was going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That changed everything when Jesus showed up. When He came on the scene as the Son of God, He radically changed the priesthood, which radically changed the law. The whole thing. Now, we're going to see more about that radical change in the law, but it's going to be revealed through other, other examples given to us in the next few chapters. So there's a radical change that occurred. Now for us Gentiles, that's not really a big deal. Okay? It doesn't really mean a great deal to us because we weren't raised with the concept of a priesthood. Now some of our Catholic brethren out there may have more of an idea of what the priesthood was about. Okay? Because Catholicism is based on that same type of setup, setup as was Israel. You know, you have priests and cardinals and bishops and the Pope, the high priest. Alright? So you've got kind of a similar structure. So they might have a little better relation. Those of you that have 
Catholicism as your background, you might be able to relate a little better than the rest of the Gentiles, but most of us as Gentiles can't really relate to this. So I was struggling with that this week. I was trying to figure out, okay, Lord, I don't, I don't really relate to you know, how great this thing is until I started breaking down what that high priest did what that high priest did in Israel and how people viewed him. Radically different than what we are normally used to. You see, under Jewish law, the ceremonial law, the high priest was the head dude, no matter what. Okay, He was the main guy. For this reason, and this reason only. If you wanted a relationship with God, and that's kind of a big if, but if you wanted a relationship with God, you had to go through Him. That was how you accessed God, was through the high priest and all those that He supervised, all the priests. And if you wanted to deal with that issue that plagues everybody naturally, your sin... Let me see if I can get it into more common terms for us. If you wanted to deal with these feelings of inadequacy, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of insecurity, feelings of unworthiness, if you wanted to deal with that in your life, you had to go through the priest. That was the only way you could deal with it. There wasn't any other way to deal with it. So particularly... If you wanted to deal with sins and its consequence, if you wanted to deal with dysfunction in your lives and its consequence, you go through the priest. Okay? And how did you do that? It was prescribed in black and white in the ceremonial law given by Moses. He prescribed very specific sacrifices and the way they were to be done, what was to be brought as a sacrifice, and how the priest were to handle that sacrifice. So your sense of well-being, your security as a person, your sense of peace was all dependent upon that function of the priest. And not just for you individually, but for the whole nation. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, a special day, there was a prescribed special sacrifice that the high priest had to make for the sins of all the people all year long. Now that was an annual event. So you can just kind of imagine all these screw-ups happening all year long and getting covered on the Day of Atonement for the nation Israel. It's how God had prescribed by the law we deal with our sin and our dysfunction. Now to the Jew, it was very important. It was vital. It was absolutely essential. And so when the writer comes along here and he says, you have a better high priest, they're going to be skeptical. Maybe a little bit hopeful, 
that, okay, this might be good for us, but they're going to be skeptical because they were used to the high priest situation as it was. When I began to put it in terms like that, I began to relate to these Hebrews. Because how do I relate to God? See, I've seen this repeated. You can kind of see the same carryover of the Jewish mentality in this uh, with people in, even in the Christian church today. People will say, well, if you've got a real, real serious problem to deal with, you need to go to the pastor. Right? You need to go to the preacher. See, that, that was going to be the introduction and the launching off into my sermon on tithing. Because <laughs> the more you tithe, the better chance you got of getting some relief by going to the preacher, right? That's a Jewish carryover from the way we naturally think under the law. And so it's kind of a radical thing when this whole chapter... To the Jewish mind, it's even more radical. But even us Gentiles, it is a radical thing as he describes this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. A couple other things I want you to note here is that he emphasizes that Melchizedek had no beginning of days. He had no mother, no father, no genealogy, etc. And he never died as far as the scripture is concerned. So this Melchizedek office was an eternal office. It was a consistent office. It never changed. Now the high priest, the Levitical high priest, changed according to death. When one died, their son took over. And when you go back and read the history in the Old Testament, you know, it got pretty corrupt over time. But that's another story. The other, other issue here... I want you to zero in on is towards the end of the chapter when he talks about the kind of high priest we need. He says, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> the end of chapter 7. He says, he didn't need daily as those high priests did because they were human beings to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because he offered sacrifice once when he offered himself. One sacrifice for all time when he offered himself. Now he'll talk more about that in the next few chapters. But for right now, he says, For such a high priest became us. Who is an high priest that is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now remember when we left off in chapter 6, we had Jesus as our high priest described as an anchor of our soul. Right? Where is Jesus? He's in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. And we are tethered to Him. We are connected to Him, though we still live down here on earth. That connection is an anchor for our soul. And it gives us hope. Now, all of that considered, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that our high priest 
has done something for us with regards to the sin issue that nobody else could do. He did something for us in that one sacrifice that He made of Himself. He did something for us that benefits us for all eternity. What was it He did for us? If you want to see the personal benefits of that one sacrifice to you, you need to go drink a little milk from Romans 6, 7, and 8. Just take a quick tour through Romans 6, 7, and 8 and you'll find out what your high priest did for you about your sin problem. That's pretty amazing, really. And shocking, too. Because when He offered Himself up on the cross, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, so were you. When Jesus was buried, so were you. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, so did you. And when He ascended into the heavenlies, so did you. You see, because Jesus is our high priest, what's true of Him is true of us. Amen. We can then experience the full reality of His work for us. He didn't atone for our sins as on the Day of Atonement. See, on that Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and burn incense before God in the very presence of God. And God would simply cover your sins. It's like sweeping your sins under a rug. That atonement doesn't get rid of sin. That atonement just covers it up. When Jesus died on the cross, He got rid of sin once and for all. How did He get rid of sin? Your sin? By making you a person that does not sin. That's how He got rid of it. He crucified the old sinful person you were, buried Him once and for all, and raised up a new person that is not now sinning, never has sinned, and never will sin. That's how He dealt with your sin as your high priest. He didn't deal with your sin by saying, okay, I know you screwed up. I'm just going to let that slide and I'm going to cover it up and go out there and try harder again. No, He didn't do it that way. That's not dealing with your sin. That's covering your sin. How do you deal with your sin? By making you a brand new person. Separating you from your sin as far as the East is from the West. Making you a brand new person, incapable of sinning. Now that new person that you are, that God made you to be, is not now sinning and never will sin, but also has never sinned. You not only have a new destiny, you have a new past. That new person you are never has screwed up. Ever. Find that a little hard to believe? Is that milk choking you a little bit? Yeah. It's a little difficult to believe that, isn't it? 
Yet that's what God says is true. That's what God says your high priest has done for you. He has separated you from your sins. He has made you a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. So what's our responsibility in this? If God did all that, what's our responsibility? Romans 6.11 Likewise, count on the fact that you yourself are dead indeed unto sin. Believe it. Count on that fact. Count on that fact. Why? So you can quit worrying about being worthless. You can quit worrying about being screwed up. You can quit worrying about being dysfunctional. You can quit worrying about your sin and all of its consequences. Well, why would he want us to quit worrying? Just so we feel good. Well, if you wanted us to feel good, he'd take it on the home. Why would he want us to quit worrying about our sin problem? Why would he want us to know that there's a high priest that has taken care of that forever? So that you can be free to love other people. See, we get so worried about ourselves. Especially in our relationship with God. I don't know if He likes me. I don't know if He's going to let me slide on that one. I don't know what He's going to do with me. We get so focused in on ourselves in relationship to God, we can't care about anybody else. There's no way I can think about you when I'm worried about me. No way. The only person I can think about is me. But Jesus, our high priest, He's broken that self-centered consciousness of sin. So we don't have to worry about it. Count on the fact that you yourself are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Be free. In addition to that, he goes on to tell us, not only are you dead to sin and alive unto God, but you are dead to the law. Yeah. You're dead to the law, which in some respects is harder to believe than you're dead to sin. You know why? Because all your life you've lived under the law. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, it doesn't matter. You've lived under a law. You've lived your life the best you can according to your own knowledge of good and evil. According to your own understanding of what's right and wrong. That's how you've made your decisions. That's how you've lived your life. Under the law. But your high priest has set you free from that. With this one sacrifice, he not only made you dead to sin, he made you dead to the law. Why? So you could be joined inseparably to him. So that you could live your life one with Jesus who is alive. How does He make that real to you? Through His Spirit. His Spirit living inside of you. Because as you all know, even though you're a brand new person, you still live in the same old sin-cursed body you were born with. Even though you're no longer the same person you always thought you were, you've got the same body. And that same body has that indwelling sin that plagues you every day. What's your high priest doing about that? 
He's making you dead to the law. So you'll quit trying to do it yourself according to your own knowledge of good and evil. That won't get the job done. Ask Paul in Romans 7. When he tried to do what was right, what happened? He failed miserably. When he tried to quit doing what was wrong, what happened? He did it anyhow. You've become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. Married to Christ. Now, when that happens, when you're joined to another and you're married to Christ, you're free from trying to figure out how you're going to save yourself even from your own flesh. You're free. So that you can trust God's provision. Your high priest has given you provisions through His Spirit. You go on into Romans 8 and you'll learn about those provisions. You're under no condemnation. You have a brand new mind, a new way of thinking, the mind of Christ. And you have the supernatural power of the Spirit working inside that new person you are to make this sin-cursed body behave. Finally, he puts it right down in high priest terms when he assures us that no one can bring any accusation against you. No one can condemn you. Why? Because God has justified you And Jesus at the right hand of the Father continually makes intercession for you as your high priest. You see, the role of the high priest for Israel without individual or a nation was going to relate to God. It's the same for us. And that's why we need a new high priest. A high priest named Jesus. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek who lives forever to make intercession for us. Who gets the job done on our behalf. A new and glorious high priest. Let's close with the word of prayer. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 